Like this is what this curve normally does. Now you can have a day where you trained on this on Monday or Tuesday, but come race day, the weather conditions have changed. And now that curve might feel totally different, mm -hmm. but all that pre-planning that you did, you're hoping that you're not reacting. You're already, because if you're, when we're, we're traveling between 80, my top speed was like 83 miles an hour. So your brain is like, gotta be thinking, if you're in curve three and you're thinking about curve three, you're late. <laughs> so I would say you, so. <laughs> yeah. So you don't have time to be thinking about curve three. If you're in curve three, you're already thinking about four, five, six. All right, welcome to The Path Distilled. I'm your host, Kevin Harris. My co-host is Lauren Tashman. Hi, everybody. Today we have on the show Leon Parsley, Olympian, registered nurse, and performance coach. Leon, I'm so excited to have you on the show with us today. Oh, thanks. I'm excited as well. So why don't you start by just giving the listeners a little bit of insight into who you are and what you do? Uh, who I am? Well, right now, uh, wearing a few hats, as you, as you mentioned there. Um, I am a registered nurse. That's my primary job. Uh, I'm blessed to have a job uh, in school health. So um, as a community health nurse, uh, I have the, the blessing of working with kids um, kindergarten through 12th grade at a small school. So um, we're dealing with a lot of things, as you can imagine, right now with the current public health situation and it's been a, a trying time for students and teachers, um, which is why it's been a blessing to be involved in trying to keep our, our kids healthy and safe and their families and our staff and stuff. So it's been busy, but, but very good. Um, and then I also am a performance coach, so I get the, the pleasure of uh, meeting with a lot of folks, um, luckily online, uh, being able to stay at work in that job. Um, working for uh, Valor Performance um, out of Boston. Great company um, that's doing some great things. I think right now, especially needed uh, with the stress that a lot of um, folks are dealing with on the job. Um, a lot of my clients work in, in healthcare, and so they're going to need a lot of help getting, getting through this as we start to kind of, as everybody says, settle into the new normal. So um, so those two jobs right there keep me really busy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely, as you said, wearing a lot of hats. So uh, why don't you take us back to the beginning? Where does your story start? Ooh, where does my story start? Um, well, officially, my, my story starts uh, in southern West Virginia. Um, I was born in the coal fields of uh, Logan County, West Virginia, uh, along the Kentucky border. And... Um, I uh, only lived there for a couple years of my life, um, but actually West Virginia is a big, big part of my story. Um, uh, my, all of my extended family still live there. Um, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, everything all still live there. But um, when I was just a couple years old, um, my father decided that he wanted to um, move up to central Ohio where there were some uh, greater chances for employment, um, for education, that sort of thing. So um, we moved up here early in my life. Uh, and it has turned out to be also a blessing. Um, although I consider Ohio and West Virginia home, um, I've grown up here in central Ohio, a little town called Granville, Ohio. 
and uh, it's very much the um, the Midwestern Norman Rockwell kind of little town. Uh, we have a small Division three university, Denison University is here. The, so the community is um, very much centered around education, very supportive of the students. Um, the academic life here in town um, is very rewarding and enriching. And so it's just been a really great place to, to grow up. And so I have just sort of stayed here. Um, my whole family has actually two older brothers and a younger sister. So we're all in this same little town. And um, it's just been a really great place to have like home base. Like I've been able to go off in the world and do all kinds of things, but knowing that I have this to come back to has been really great. Um, and I think that's been a big part of my story of feeling confidence, of going out and trying some, some things that were maybe a little crazy, um, but I always had that support base back here. So um, it's a great town. I, you know, it's one of those towns where we grew up um, living outside as kids, uh, on our bikes, at the pool, on the, the playground, the basketball courts, the tennis courts. I mean, we just were in constant motion. And uh, I think that laid um, a really solid foundation of cross training. They didn't call it back then, but you know that's essentially what we were doing. Um, and you know, you were on a skateboard, you're on a bike, you were, um, you know, climbing trees. And um, we, when I was in about the second grade, I think it was, is when I started playing what we would call then like organized youth sport. But in a town this small, basically was we had a little uh, recreation commission. We would play, you know, get together on Saturday mornings. That was it. You know, it was like Saturday mornings you get together and um, practice a little bit with your teammates. You might have a little game. And um, it's nothing like, you know, the youth sport machine that, that goes on now. It was just for fun. We just got together that one day. And um, and so in second grade, just really started to, to play soccer, played basketball, um, was the quarterback of our flag football team, you know, so um, lots of different opportunities, but um, that led eventually into, of course, you know, playing for our school, um, being in, in school sports. So early on, I had a feel that athletics was a place that um, felt very natural to me. Um, you know, I had tried piano lessons, I had tried playing the trumpet, I, you know, I, I tried all the, the other different things and just um, just couldn't settle into that. But as an athlete, uh, that was very early. It was, was part of my identity. Um, I think, you know, looking back on it, that's when I was running, jumping, climbing, cycling, that's when I felt like the most like me. That was um, where I felt the most authentic. And so that just followed me through high school. Um, very blessed to have some great friends in junior high and high school that I remain very close friends with to this day. Um, we get together every, about every 10 years, we do a, a big reunion where we go somewhere. You know, our 40th, we went to a weekend in New York, 50th, <laughs> we were out in California. Uh, we, we just, um, it, one of those situations where you, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was surrounding myself with really positive people. It just happened organically. You know, now I look back on it and they teach kids to do this now. It just sort of happened. Very blessed to have had that. Happen. And did you pick one sport or did you continue to do multiple sports? 
did multiple sports. I'm one of those uh, advocates for, like you said, like cross training where it's a combination of a lot of things. Uh, in junior high school, it was there weren't a lot of um, choices for the girls back then. Not that I'm that old, but you know, we uh, being a small community, there wasn't a lot. Other schools around us had more opportunities, but um, we were little, and there was about a hundred and 20, 125 in my graduating class. So we were pretty small. Um, I played volleyball, basketball, track and field. When I got to high school, already injuries kind of starting to pile up with my knees. So I picked two, stuck with basketball, track and field. I was a high jumper, loved field events, loved being out um, on a Saturday all day out in the sun and on the track. So really enjoyed that. But basketball was my, my primary first love. You know, that was where I just really excelled because I loved it so much. That's what we played all the time. I had a basketball in my hand all the time. Um, was very blessed to go back to Marshall University, go back to West Virginia, and played on a, a scholarship for basketball there four years for Judy Southern. Great experience, really great coach who was uh, very encouraging. Uh, very fair. I couldn't really have asked for more. I think that was really, um, Marshall was division one, but it was double A. So it wasn't like nearby Ohio State. It wasn't that kind of level division one, but it was mm -hmm. still fairly high. And I was a starter just a few games into my freshman year. So it was a perfect fit in terms of wanting to get playing time, um, sort of being away from home, but being close to family down there. So grandparents could come to games and just really worked out very well. And I had a, my coach was very understanding in that she knew that I was, I love track and field just as much. And after my freshman year was able to talk her into allowing me to do both sports, which is pretty unusual at that level. So I really uh, enjoyed doing track and field as well for the next, for my sophomore, junior and senior year at Marshall. So two sport, um, athlete at Marshall, which was was great. It was a really good experience of seeing a sport like women's basketball that was very well funded um, with a sport that really was not as well funded. So it was kind of the have and the have nots. And so it really, when I went back to the basketball season after competing for the spring, it made me more appreciative of what we had on the basketball team. And so I was able to lay that out to some of my players when they would complain about not having something. I'm like, just wait a minute. <laughs> like we were traveling in these tiny little vans on the track team and we're in this really big, beautiful bus. Don't worry that we're not in an airplane, <laughs> you know, so you could relatively, you could compare. And so that, that actually really helped make the basketball experience um, even better. But um, yeah, it was, it was a great four years. And so, I have a quick question about before that, um, at which point, if any, did you start getting attention? Did you feel like a standout or were people telling you that you were a standout at any point along this path so far? You know, that's a really good question because looking back on it, um, we, I was, the team that I played with in high school was amazing. We were just a game short of making it to the state championships and we had like three division one players on the team um our point guard ellen bain was an all-state uh, 
point guard, went on to Holy Cross in Colorado to play. Um, I went to Marshall, another forward who was a year younger than I went to Ohio University and played. We, there, Ellen was probably our standout. Our point guard was just so phenomenal. Like you would just stand there in the game sometimes just be watching her because she was amazing. Um, but it was a really well-rounded team. So there really wasn't somebody who stood out so much. Like Ellen's job was that outside scoring, ball handling. Um, our other forward, uh, Laura Redding, she was such a scrapper. She would be in, you know, just fighting. She could her arm, her, her reach was such that she led the team in steals. My job was to get the junk off the board and put stuff back in for those little chip shots. We, everybody had a role. And so when I look back on it, when we were playing, it didn't feel like any one person really. Um, of course, I look back on it now and I realized that everybody had a role. And, and that's actually been such a lesson in teamwork that I've been able to relay to so many kids that I've helped coach along the way. And, and actually even in the performance coaching now, working with people who are in the corporate world, healthcare, healthcare is such a team dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you're talking about patient care and you're working with physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, occupational therapists, family members, you know, everybody's a part of that team has input and no one role is really more important. It's just each person brings something in. And that has really been a lesson that I have carried through and appreciated so much along the way. So it was really not until probably my junior year that I was like, wow, okay, may, <laughs> this may actually be something I can do in college. I think my father saw it in me earlier and I think, he was watching, okay, like where would she fit collegiately? Like where would this work? And, and he was kind of my, my Ellen, my point guard used to joke that he was my, my agent. Um, you know, he, I think he was sort of putting feelers out there to schools on my behalf. You know, now they have companies that do this. You know, I had, my father was the businessman and uh, he was, was handling that. And um, I think it was then that it was like, wow, this, this could be something that I could do. But all along, it really was just, I love doing this. I mean, we would spend, we would play at the swimming pool on the basketball courts until we were just fried in the sun. And then we would go jump in the water until we were waterlogged. And then we'd get back out and go back to the courts and play and did that all day long. Then we'd go home, eat, and then we'd meet at somebody's yard driveway and play all night until the, you know, into the, the night hours. So the neighbors were like, okay, put the ball away. You know? <laughs> um, so it was really just something that I loved doing. It's just being in motion and playing and being with those kids. Was there any impact on you going from really that experience of it being play? I mean, obviously you were, you were playing in high school on a team, but sounds like it really resonated the play aspect and then you go to college and it's the practice the structure you know did was there any impact or shift in you because of that um a little bit i think the first time it really hit was that first christmas break that we came home and our coach sat us down in the locker room and was like okay no skiing you're not allowed to go skiing you're not allowed to 
because she just knew a lot of the kids were from the hills of West Virginia. They were local ski resorts and she just knew we would be out doing crazy stuff. Mm. I was like, oh yeah, actually they have the right to tell us that we can't do that <laughs> stuff because we could easily get hurt. And then all the money and time that they put into us is, you know, could be jeopardized. So I think really at that point, it kind of sunk in. Like, oh, okay. Actually we, we, they do sort of own us in a way. So, um, but it was in a good way. You know, uh, I had, because I had just played all the time. Um, it really didn't seem weird that it was, you know, that it was structured that, of course, we were getting up a little bit earlier, you know, we were out on the track with the ROTC guys at, you know, 530, which wasn't <laughs> normally what I would do on my own time. But, uh, but yeah, we, um, you know, was a little more structured. And of course, you know, being a student athlete on campus was different. Um, you did have some things that, you know, some perks of being able to register for classes ahead of time to make sure that you got into the classes so that you could get around your you know, your, uh, your sports schedule around your academic schedule. So um, those little things started to pop up and sort of in my head, I was like, okay, this is a little bit, a little bit different. And, and for these nice benefits, I owe this back to them, you know, so, um, but it was such a great working relationship with the coaches and the team. And for the most part, most of the professors were, were very good about saying, yeah, okay, you guys can be on the road. Let me get this stuff to you ahead of time. And, and that was our job. I mean, our coach was very adamant about academics and we had study halls and things that we had to go to. And um, so in that regard, it was a little more structured, but it wasn't a huge transition. And did you go to college for nursing? Actually, the first go around, I did not. Um, and like everybody else, you know, you shift majors many times. Um, I actually went in my freshman year thinking sports journalism. I really enjoyed uh, my journalism classes, English classes in high school. And I thought, yeah, this would be fun. Not that I could write or anything, but you know, you gotta, you gotta declare something, right? So, so I thought, well, this could be cool getting to write about all this stuff. And quickly within the first semester, you know, you get into school and you realize all the choices that you have, you know, things that you weren't exposed to in, in high school. Mm -hmm. Wow, look at all this stuff that you can do, you know, as you meet people and you, you um, a lot of colleges now have that first week of school, you have all the school clubs and stuff are out there and just kind of walk around and think, oh my gosh, I didn't even know this existed, you know. So I very quickly found that uh, the classes in physical education with it had to do with kinesiology, physiology, anatomy. I really, really enjoyed those classes. And so I shifted my major right off the bat, went right into um, exercise physiology, what would be exercise physiology today. Mm -hmm. And as I did work like internships for that program, um, I found myself in a cardiac rehabilitation program at a local hospital here for a summer internship. And the nurses were like, you should just go ahead and go on and get your nursing degree because then you could still do this, but you'd be opening yourself up to all these other possibilities if you wanted to. And the more I thought about it, it made sense because also at the same time, when I was 16 um, with two older brothers in town, I, who were members of the volunteer fire department, I had joined the fire department and was working towards getting my emergency medical technician, like the basic level of being a paramedic, um, getting that. And I thought, yeah, because if I decide I'd like to work 
the emergency room or something, I could do that with my nursing degree. So that whole side of my life started to weave itself into my academic life. Um, I actually had been hanging around the fire department since I was like 12 years old mm. in a little town like this. It was a mostly volunteer department. We lived three blocks. So every time the siren would blow, like half my family would get up and, and run down the street and jump <laughs> on a fire truck. So uh, following my brothers along, um, that also became a huge part of my life. I was a firefighter for 20 years. Um, I was a structural firefighter, like you would normally think of a firefighter in the, in the firehouse. But I also did 10 years of wildland firefighting and went out west in the summers and fought fire out California, Oregon, Montana, New Mexico, places like that. So um, that really set that stage for, okay, if we do the nursing, then I have some possibility of weaving those two things together. So I went after I left Marshall to the University of Virginia, who had a program that you could do that. If you already had another bachelor degree, you could come in as a junior and just do two more years for a second mm -hmm. bachelor's degree. So I actually have a bachelor of arts, but I also have a bachelor of science in nursing um, from Virginia. And then from there, I went back to Ohio State, came back home and went to Ohio State for my master's and my PhD in community public health nursing. So it's been a very long academic road, but when I look back on it, it like I said, it weaves in there. You can sort of connect the dots mm -hmm. a little bit, but um, it's, been, it's been a real pleasure to work in both of those fields. I would have liked to have carried on with the firefighting, but at the time, my Olympic training and travel just was making it really difficult. Um, you can't really just pop in and out of the, the firehouse. Um, I was doing it part-time and that was, working for a while, but it was time after 20 years to, to give it up and, and focus, you know, couldn't be the jack of all trades, kind of needed to focus in on something. So. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like you're doing a pretty good job thus far <laughs> of doing the jack of all trades. <laughs> <laughs> there are just so many great things. As I tell our kids at school, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so many fun things in life to do. And I really think that if I had, didn't matter what I picked, I was actually talking to a friend of mine from college that I play with at Marshall. I don't think it would have mattered what I picked. I could have been a meteorologist. I could have been an archaeologist. I wouldn't have cared. There are just so many fun things to do. And it's just a matter of where your talents and your abilities are and finding something that you really love to do that matches your skills and what you're willing, the time that you're willing to put in to develop those. That's where you have to have the fun part because you know it's going to take time to develop. But if you're having fun doing it, then... Um, you can really get those things to the synergy of your abilities, your skills, your passions, and all that stuff just sort of flow together. And you can do that in lots of different things. So it, it's fun to, to work with the kids at school to get them to realize that, to see that they have lots to do. So you've scored over a thousand points at Marshall, right? Yes. Uh, and inducted into the Hall of Fame. Um, so what was the transition like? Or how, what happens during the transition? How did you move from that? Or what happens next? Yeah. Well, again, not to sound old, but back when I graduated from Marshall, there was no WNBA. Like that really, the, the beginnings were sort of out there, like people wanting to get it started. So really, if you wanted to play basketball beyond the collegiate level as a woman, you had to go overseas. 
But the problem was even those programs were hit or miss. Uh, a friend of mine that I played with at Marshall, she had gone on and played in England for a year or two. For her, it was primarily just wanting to be in England. I mean, it was more about the travel and the experience. Basketball was sort of the side uh, show, and sometimes you got paid, sometimes you didn't. Uh, another girl that I went to, to college with went to Spain, same thing, played for a little while, but it just was hit or miss. I had already been accepted into that nursing program at UVA, and I thought, I'm just not going to take that chance. Um, I might not get into this program if I don't go now. <clears throat> so that's what I did. I was I'm just going to, you know, I've taken my basketball as far as I can, and I've had a great run at it, and this is as high as it'll go, and I'm ready to move on. So I actually was done with competitive sport after uh, Marshall, after 1990, but I stayed involved with club sport, and when you've grown up as an athlete like that, just staying active, basically firefighting was my athletic job. Mm. You know, that is very much a job where my athletic skills and abilities were put to the test. I was able, you know, you feel very much like an athlete. We would have our workouts and stuff um, when we were on call and off call, and um, so that really kept me in shape and kept me competitive in a different kind of way. Mm -hmm. And after the uh, 1996 Olympic Games, I had been watching a sport called team handball that I thought, oh my goodness, why have I never really <laughs> seen this sport? Because this looks awesome. And I hadn't realized it at the time, but one of the point guards I played with, it was an upperclassman when I was a freshman. Marshall had played on one of the junior Olympic teams that they used to have back then. And she, I hadn't realized she'd been playing and I talked to her a little bit and she pointed my, me in the direction of watching the 96 games. And I thought, this is awesome. I got to check this out. So, you know, made some phone calls and found a club team over in uh, Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania, a few hours away, closest one I could find. But got connected with some of those folks and just like got in my car and drove to Atlanta. I was like, okay, let's see what's going on here with the sport. And just fell in with some really nice people who were excited about trying to spread the word about this sport, it's primarily a European sport. It looks like water polo on an oversized basketball court. And they were very welcoming. So I, I played on some club, a club team there with them, Slippery Rock. We went to some tournaments at West Point, got a chance to go and um, spent some time on the campus at West Point uh, for some tournaments every spring, which was really fun. And primarily it was a sport for them because as um, military folks who spent time in Europe, the sport was is very much a part of, of growing up in, your, in certain parts of Europe. It's very much like basketball and soccer would be for us. So they brought it back over here. So you would see it in New York and in, in, in places, but it wasn't a collegiate sport here at all. They've been trying to get it off the ground, but just haven't here in the States. So I played team handball, tried out for the national team. During the tryouts, busted my thumb. And so it's a little hard to hold a ball when you can't grip it. <laughs> so luckily the team asked me to stay on um, as a part of the, the staff and I worked as a manager for the USOC for the handball team as they tried to go to the Sydney games in 2000. So the first thing we had to do was in 98, 99, we had to win the Pan American games 
And as the winner, you automatically qualified then to go on. So that was the goal. And I stayed on with that team. And part of my job was to try and find funding for that team. And that was not an easy thing. This is in the late 90s. So Google and search engines were just <laughs> getting off the ground. So I did some uh, research and found instead of women's sports, a winter sports page popped up. Not a very good search engine, <laughs> sort of. It actually was serendipitous. It turned out that um, I saw some pictures of women's bobsled and skeleton. And I thought, okay, first of all, I've never seen women in a bobsled because at that point they never had been. It had always been men that I had grown up watching in the Olympic games. And I had never seen a skeleton sled ever. And once again, my reaction was, oh my gosh, that looks awesome. I've got to try that. So I believe it or not, everybody laughs when I say this, but I actually dialed 1-800-BOBSLED <laughs> and just started talking to people. Like, what is this about women in bobsled? And how do I, you know, it's the skeleton. How do I get involved? So the guy I talked with out in Lake Placid at the training center was asking me all these questions about my sport career. So everything I've just told you, like I went over, I was like, wow, that's awesome. We would love to have you, you know, come out. We have a training camp where we kind of do like a recruiting camp. We put you through some, you know, like vertical jump and, you know, how fast you can sprint, all that kind of stuff. And then they pick from there athletes to stay to see how well you can do all that on ice in a pair of spikes. So right as we're getting ready to hang up, he says, by the way, how old are you? It's like, oh, I'm 30. Crickets. Like there was no sound. Like, um, okay, well, we're really looking for people who are like high school, college age. Uh, you're more than welcome to come out if you want to, you know, see the training center and enjoy some time, you know, in Lake Placid. But really, he was this nice brush off of you're really just way too old for what we're looking for. No problem. So hung up, got in my truck drove off to Lake Placid, got there, and once again, just met, fell in with some, some great people. Actually, with the bobsled side of things, it just didn't feel right. Something just didn't feel right. And that, the year later, actually, the coaching staff that was involved with bobsled was dismissed for a variety of reasons. So my gut instinct was correct. But the people that were there with Skeleton, Terry Holland, Peter Vitulis, um, some of the folks that were, were there for Skeleton were more than inviting. They're like, come hang out with us. You're going to love this. We're going to have a lot of fun. It was not an Olympic sport at that time. So they were, the pressure was not there. It was like, let's just have some fun with this. There were, there was a World Cup team, a national team, and these guys were out roaming the world during the winter for World Cup season. But it had not been in the Olympic Games since 1928 and 1948 when the sport was, when the games were in St. Moritz, Switzerland, which is where bobsled luge and skeleton sort of took off. So no pressure. It was just, let's go out and have some fun. And I did. I, they, you're, you started about halfway down on the track. And they said, we can tell whether you're going to love this or not by the sound of your screen. <laughs> so they would lay you down on the sled and literally just like kick you off from the start. 
I was screaming in pure joy the entire way down. I was like, I've got to go back and do this again. So we got on the truck, went to the top, did this for several days, and you worked your way up to the very top until that last day. And uh, going from the top that first time was just an amazing feeling. And I was in love with it from, from the start. So that was getting into skeleton. <laughs> Is this uh, a living arrangement? Do you live there during the training or? Well, at that time, because um, Skeleton is actually governed by the Bobsled and Skeleton Federation. Luge is governed independently by themselves. Even though all three sports, sliding sports, we all use the same track. We just use a different mode of transportation from the top to the bottom. <laughs> um, everybody's on their own kind of sled. Um, luge athletes sit on their sled and paddle. If you've seen their spikes are in their, their hands, they paddle, lay back and go. So they have to go from a different start. Almost looks like a giant slide that they get into. Our starting point is flat because we have to run with our sleds. Like bobsledders jump into their sled. We jump onto our sled from the same point at the top. So, um, they're, they're the same, but they're different. So Luge kind of does their own thing. Bobsled and Skeleton do their own thing. Because we're governed by Bobsled and for a long time had never been heard of in the United States, all of our funding really came, I hate to say it, kind of came with whatever was left <laughs> from Bobsled. Mm -hmm. So we did not typically live there year round um, until 2000 when it was brought back into the games for 2002. Then they were like, okay, these athletes need to make a decision. Are you guys, because you know, at the time we were basically working our own jobs, funding like me going out West fighting fire all summer so that I could go slide all winter was essentially what athletes were doing. So at that point it was a decision that we had to make. Okay. Are we going to jump into this dream of going to the games um, where we've just been doing this kind of part time? How are we going to do this? So when it became more of a full-time ambition, then we made that shift and people started living more at the Olympic Training Center, particularly in Lake Placid up in, for the 2002 games. There's a track out there, of course, from the Lake Placid games. The track in Salt Lake was being built, but there were no dorms or athlete facilities there. It was literally just the track. Um, we would change in our cars and tents, you know, it's, you know, minus 10 outside and you're changing into your gear and a tent with a heater in it um the good old days so um it wasn't until actually after those 2002 games where we did really well that skeleton started to get more funding and then athletes we started to spend more time living and training out in san diego because in march and april in upstate new york <laughs> it was still a bit chilly we could still get some snow so we shifted to doing some of that early spring training out in San Diego. So we were out there for a while. So it was a hodgepodge. It just depended on where you lived, when you got into the sport, where it was in terms of funding, where you lived and where you trained. But a lot of people, it was completely independent. You were kind of on your own. So what was it like for you those couple of years preparing for the 2002 games? Um, It was different. Uh, it 
when I got into the sport, of course, not being Olympic, that was not my ambition at all. Like my whole thing had been my athletic career, competitive career, I felt was, was a bit behind me. But all throughout my life, no matter what I've been doing, my, when I have found something that I really enjoy doing, when I feel like it's clicking with my abilities, my skills, I feel like this is where I'm supposed to be. When that all comes together, then in my mind, I'm like, okay, your job now is to just push this as far as it'll go. Mm. Academically pushed it as far as I could go. Went to my PhD, fire service. I was my, I was the top cadet when I graduated from the Ohio fire school. It was like, my job is push this as high as it goes. So everything has been that way. So when I got into skeleton and it came to that point where they were like, okay, who's, who's in on this? Then it was kind of like, okay, so this is it. I'm going to push this as far as it goes. And if that's, if it means going to the Olympics, then great. If it's not, at least when it's over, I can say, like with basketball, I took this as far as I could. WNBA wasn't an option. I, I, can, I can look back on that and not be disappointed because it just didn't exist then. I took it as far as it would go. So that was really the mentality going into those games was let's see what happens. Push it. If it happens, great. If not, you can walk away from it. So pushed it, and um, it turned out that at the time, what they did was, because the sport was coming in for the first time, it was almost, we were not exhibition, but we were close. We, we had proved that we could um, all be on the track at the same time, bobsled, luge, and skeleton. We could hold three sports on one venue in a two week period of time. And that was tough. I mean, there was no room for error in the schedule. We had to just keep things moving. And so we had proven that we were, we were on board and, but to do that, they had to limit the number of people on the team. Each mm -hmm. nation only had so many. So the top three women's nations were allowed to bring two athletes. And that was it. All the other nations got one. So we were fighting up in that World Cup season. We had World Cup races, very much like you would see um, in downhill skiing. You know, you went to the different Olympic venues. You would have a World Cup season, and then you'd have a World Championship at the end. Well, this year, the, the ending was the Olympic Games. So we had been going through a World Cup season, and our team had been doing well enough that we were on. We were, we were in the hunt for that two-position spot. Um, the other first two teams had it locked in. We were fighting with Switzerland for that last spot. So during the team trials, I, of course, uh, tore my hamstring um, and ended up finishing second. So Tristan Gale, my teammate, was assured the given spot. Mm -hmm. We as a team had to go through two or three more World Cup races to gain that, that second spot. And of course, the last race was in St. Ritz, Switzerland against the Swiss on their home track. So uh, we went into it thinking, we just, you know, you do what you can do. And um, Trisha Stump, one of the, the athletes who finished third in the team trials, um, came and did an amazing job uh, as a team member. I, I, couldn't have go I couldn't have gone to the Olympics without her performance. Um, she, the three of us, um, myself, Tristan and Trisha did well enough as a team in that last race to earn the second position. And so I was, um, given that illustrious second spot on the Olympic team. And it really was due to that effort that the team put that, that really that Trisha put forward. So 
Um, definitely, I can look back and say there were a lot of people who helped me get there, but those are people like that that just without, she didn't have to do that. She could have been like, hey, I'm not going to the games. Uh, there's no reason for me to make this trip. I don't have to go. But she didn't. She went and helped earn that spot. I have uh, two questions, if you don't mind, before we move uh, any further. Um, did you ever meet the person that warned you about being 30 at the time? You know, no, but he was certainly on my mind when I was standing on the podium <laughs> with my medal around my neck. You know, there were a lot of people like that that I thought of uh, during that time, but also thought of people like Trisha, uh, like Robbie Vaughn, who was one of my first sponsors, um, who came along and, and had faith in me, who, who came forward and said, look, I don't know if you've ever thought about doing this sport, but we think there's a chance it could be in the Olympics. We'd like to have you stick around and and with the team and i know that the olympic uh committee is not going to fund you because you are outside of their age bracket he said but i will uh he was a personal sponsor um robbie's in texas uh, vaughn petroleum and he had been on the team as an athlete himself and he knew early on that he wasn't going to be able to be part of the olympic team as an athlete he was even older than me but he recognized his skills and abilities were in team management and motivation and support. And so he shifted roles very quickly and became a huge part of our team success because he recognized his role, like where do my abilities best fit in this dream? And so he came on and was the team manager and, and sponsored me. So people like that were on my mind, but so were those folks who said I was, I was too old. So yeah, I thought about them. I never actually met them in person, but I didn't need to. The motivation was already there. So. And as we've, as you've mentioned, the um, getting prepared for the Olympics, what did a typical day look like during that preparation? Yeah, um, it totally depends, of course, on time of year. Because we are winter athletes, the summer is often spent training very much like a track and field sprinter. Because our sport at the very beginning is all about pushing the sled as fast and as hard as you possibly can, you're coming off of a wooden block that's, at the, that's bolted into the ice at the top. Um, it's like having a, um, blocks like you would a, a, a sprinter would. And everything is all about power and explosion off there, getting the sled moving forward as fast as possible. Then you jump on and then it is a total mind shift because now it's, you're away from that burst of energy into settling in, being very quiet. And actually, as we would like to say, the Zen moment of just sort of melting into your sled and being one with the feel of the sled and the feel of the track and so a lot of it was sprint work, being in the weight room, and some cross training. Um, we loved training down in San Diego. It was such a great uh, training facility. We could get out, um, play big games of ultimate frisbee to get warmed up, and, and just some great team building activities. But then moving into the serious part of getting into the gym and doing work, going out on the track, doing a lot of sprint work, agility work. Um, a lot of time for those who were older uh, in sports med, making sure we were well recovered and rested. Rested became a very big part of, I learned a lot about rest and recovery as I got older, um, but that certainly was, was part of it too. We had some great folks in sports medicine that, that took care of us. But So the summer was spent a lot like that. 
as soon as we could get on ice, of course, we shifted gears and we were back to Lake Placid, usually in mid to late October. It started being cold enough at night that we could make ice and get on the track. Um, but we also were fortunate to have um, what, what we called a start house, ice house up in Calgary. Our neighbors to the north were kind and allowed us to have training time up there where the that very first part of the race where you're running on the ice, that flat surface, then you'd hop on and then the track starts to drop away. You start going downhill. <clears throat> Excuse me, and at that point, it's a little bit of gravity. Um, that part you could make and you could build it in a, a, a facility in a building and then just refrigerate that section. So even during the hot parts of July and August, you could be on a little bit of ice practicing that start just so, so important. It's such a key part. Um, if you watch bobsled, especially four man, that is truly a, a dance of getting four men that size into a bobsled. And so it's very coordinated. It's very practiced. So that being able to get on ice in the summer was really important, especially for them, but also for us. Um, Luge, same way. Luge had their um, their spot up there, um, the ice house had a, a spot for bobsled and skeleton and a spot for luge. So during the winter, we, we are mostly out, out on the track and that would shift. Um, we would do some morning time out on the track. Then we would come in, uh, you know, go through some rest time, lunch, rehab, and then the afternoon might be in the gym or vice versa. It might be a day where we had to be out on the track. It kind of depended what the other sports were doing, who had time on the ice. So it was just sort of an orchestrated training effort between the groups who was on the ice at the time and then who would be in the weight room, and who would be um, working out, um, doing therapy or whatever. So it was a combination of on ice, sprint work, weight room, just a lot of things during the year. What's interesting about our sport, though, is the G-force that we experience is quite significant. Uh, can be. Depends on the track. Every track is different, which is what's fun about it. It's like going to roller coasters all over the world. They're all different. They <laughs> have to follow the same physics, laws of physics, but they're all a little bit different. They're about a mile long, give or take a little bit. And the G-force on some of them is, is pretty significant. So you can take three or four or five trips down a track. But realistically, two or three a day is really about all your neck and your brain can handle. If it's a really bumpy track, there is the tendency to, um, you have to be really careful with concussion type symptoms because it's, you're literally rattling your brain all the way down if it's, if it's too bumpy. That's why you treat your track crew really, really well <laughs> because they do a really good job then of making it as smooth as possible. Um, the, the rule was always if you broke a track record on race day, you, you owed the crew a case of something because <laughs> they had done a great job of getting it fast and making it smooth. But, um, but we would spend actually quite a bit of time in visualizing. We were very big uh, into visualization. Um, back to my days at Marshall, um, I, my senior year, I led the nation, men and women, in free throw percentage. And that was my really my first introduction to the concept of visualizing, like shooting free throws in my head um, over and over and over again. 
without actually being in the gym. Um, and so that transferred over to, to skeleton where I would, we'd go back to our hotel room or go back to our dorm room, lay the sled down on the floor and you would literally go down the track in your head, all the steering moves. Um, and after a while we were able to get um, like one of the little cameras on a helmet and we were able to get that point of view. So then we would lay on our sleds in our rooms with the laptop in front of us, literally going down the track with the, it was our version of a simulator. It was like a handmade you know, simulator. So a lot of visualization training would go on during the year. If we, you know, if a track day was canceled because of weather, just go back to your room and take several trips down the track in your head. <laughs> so a lot of visualization. So that, that brings me to a question I had of, you obviously had your track background kind of to your advantage. And then you just mentioned there the, the background already and using visualization, which is such a, a powerful tool. Um, what other parts of your background were you able to, to, to leverage and use to your advantage in this completely kind of new sport? Yeah. Um, actually, I think in some ways, um, I even actually brought firefighting into it in a little bit. Um, you know, when you're going into a burning building or you're approaching a, a hazardous situation scene, there's a lot of pre-planning that's already gone on in your head. I mean, that's a big part of what firefighters do during the day when there's downtime at the station. There's a lot of training. There's a lot of driving around the community saying, okay, if we had a fire over here, what would we do? Like, what hydrants are we hitting? Um, where's this engine parking? Where are we stationing this ladder? There's a lot of, of pre-planning so that when that emergency situation hits, everybody already knows what they're doing. You almost don't have to speak. You just, somebody will bark out something and you're like, got it. And you know exactly where you're going. So that concept, speed that up a lot, of course, was very much like pre-planning the track. Like this is what this curve normally does. Now you can have a day where you trained on this on Monday or Tuesday, but come race day, the weather conditions have changed. And now that curve might feel totally different, mm -hmm. but all that pre-planning that you did, you're hoping that you're not reacting. You're already, because if you're, when we're, we're traveling between 80, my top speed was like 83 miles an hour. So your brain is like got to be thinking if you're in curve three and you're thinking about curve three, you're late. <laughs> so, <laughs> I would say you, so. <laughs> yeah. so you don't have time to be thinking about curve three. If you're in curve three, you're already thinking about four, five, six. So that thinking ahead, but speeding it up um, was actually a little bit like that. Um, and, and that idea of anybody tells you they're running into a burning building that they're not afraid. Um, that's, that's not, I don't think that's accurate. I think there should always be a healthy fear of, okay, when I'm, everybody else is running out of the building, we're running in, that should tell you something. Um, so, you know, being able to take that fear and say, okay, that is actually okay. That's your body saying you're about ready to do something that's a little bit freaky. So you need to be, your head's got to be on tight and you got to be thinking, you know, so some of those same lessons from actually from firefighting and some of those things, even in healthcare, you know, working ER, um, where same thing, you practice like these codes, you know, cardiac arrest codes and things. 
those are practiced and trained repeatedly. So when someone comes into the ER and, you know, they've got no heartbeat, they're not breathing, all of a sudden, you know, code blue, whatever, whatever the signal is over the air, people respond, you already know exactly what you're doing. And each person has a job and you've, you already know what's going on. Your adrenaline's pumping and you know what you're supposed to be doing. So in some ways, a lot of those same um, ideas of preparing to, and which allowed you to have the confidence to deal with that feeling of fear came from other areas of my life. Um, so I think there was, a, a, in some ways, looking back on it, there was a common thread that sort of ran through a lot of, of those different jobs, which normally you would think are completely unrelated, but in some ways they were, because um, like I said, at 83 miles an hour, you don't, you don't have time to think. Um, you, you're, you're more reacting and it's because you've spent all that time up until then thinking about it in slow motion, lying on your sled, going through the curves, going slowly, letting it sink in until you're ready to do it at 83 miles an hour. And did you ever have times during your training that you were like, I really don't want to do this today? Or did, oh, yeah. Know, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are plenty of times. I mean, some just for sheer, like, I'm tired. Like, you know, you get to the end of the season. Um, you know, being a winter sport, you're waking up at five or six in the morning. It's still pitch black outside. You're like, really? We got to go to the track now. You know, I remember in Norway, we, <laughs> I love Norway. I had some of the best times in Norway, but it would be like daylight, not till like 9.30 or 10 o'clock in the morning. And then daylight was gone by two o'clock. Um, so there's some of that like seasonal, like, oh, you know, I'm just, the season's got to end. Um, so you had to fight through some of that every once in a while, but certainly, um, whenever you would go to a track for the first time it was always a little nerve-wracking when i first went down the track in park city and in calgary those were my first two tracks that i ever went on you had the opportunity to say hey i've never done this before so let's you know you started at the bottom kind of worked your way up to these different points in the track where you would come in one was called the junior level that's where all your little junior luge kids <laughs> would come in and you'd start there and you'd go down you know then you'd bump up to what was called Domin start for women's start, because in luge, the women don't go from the top. They go, unfortunately, from a lower spot, which is one of the reasons I didn't do luge. I wanted <laughs> to go from the top. Um, they start in, so that's about three quarters of the way up. So you'd start there and going. When you go to a track for the first time, once they're like, hey, you've already been down a track, you should know how to do this. You're starting from the top for the first time that is nerve-wracking. I don't care who it is, it's always a little nerve-wracking. So you had those butterflies that would be in your stomach, but that was that, okay, you could talk yourself through it. It's like, that's okay. It's supposed to feel like that. You've never done this one before. You're supposed to feel a little nervous. So roll with it. Um, as somebody always said, you know, let your butterflies fly in formation. You know, that was that practice of getting those butterflies to work for you not against you. And uh, you, you learn to do that at the top. And I think probably the one that stands out the most would be um, the track in Segulda, Latvia was notorious for being dangerous. And like they, it was a track that the curves were so tight that you couldn't, we were told you couldn't do a four man bob on there because it was just too, too narrow. So you had skeleton and two man or, or women's bobsled is just two people. 
So I clearly remember standing at the top of that track and all the other nations were starting at the halfway point. And our coach was like, nope, you're going from the top. And our knees were knocking. I mean, we were like, okay, here we go, you know. And then, of course, the first two people that went down the track were local people, local sliders. Both of them crashed. Mm. So we're at the top of the track going, we're supposed to go down this. We've never been down this track. The people who know this track just crashed. So those are just things that add up to the, the fear level. But you stand up there and just continually self-talk. I mean, you talk about some positive self-talk going on. I mean, we were, you know, you're telling yourself, you've done this before. You've been to other tracks for the first time. You've done fine. I mean, you really have to talk yourself through it. And of course, you're, you know, encouraging your teammates. You got this. You know, you we can do this. And um, and you get to the bottom and you get off the sled and it's bliss. You're like, this was perfect. Like, okay, I did it. You know, I, I totally, totally talked myself through that and I was able to do it. So, yeah. Did you ever have any, uh, any crashes or significant crashes? Um, I did actually. Um, one of the first times I was on a sled in Europe, we were in Altenburg, Germany and it had a what's called a Kreisel turn. Kreisel is a circle in German. It is a, a curve that when you come in, you almost make a complete 360 and come back out going the other way. Those are, for me, those were incredibly challenging curves because no matter how hard I tried to work the strength in my neck, um, I just had a really hard time holding my head up against that G-force. So when you're laid out on the sled, your head, the, the last thing on the sled at the top are your shoulders. So your neck and your head are out in front. So that G-force is, it's like an elephant sitting on you. It just really pushes down. So my face almost always, as soon as I went into a Kreisel turn, my head, my face went right to the ice. I mean, I was, I never had a sponsor sticker <laughs> on my chin because it always got scratched off. It, it would always end up on the track somewhere. Um, so I, of course, this was one of the first times I'd experienced that sort of curve, didn't know, went in, G-force hit, head went straight to the ice, and came around, flew out of that curve down the, the ice, and I thought, oh my gosh, my jaw, I've, I've broken my jaw. Got to the finish line, blood just gushing, and I thought, but I also am in East Germany and I do not speak German. I am not going to the hospital to have this fixed. I might come out with my appendix and I might not. So I thought <laughs> there's no way I'm gonna do it. So went back to the hotel room and um, patched it myself. Being an EMT, I knew that um, actually the first thing that super glue was used for was in the field, in the military, it was a liquid suture. So it wasn't exactly the same chemical formula, but it was close enough. So I had some shoe goo that we used to use on our shoes because we don't have brakes on our sleds. Bob sleds have brakes, skeletons do not. So we have to drag our feet. Once we cross the finish line, those are our brakes. Well, we just go through shoes like crazy. By the way, yeah. nothing about this is sounding fun. Like you're- Oh, it is so great. <laughs> it is so great. So I, I got back to the dorm room and, or back to my hotel room, just kind of looked in the mirror, held my chin closed and pooped it up with some, some shoe goo a few days later. All was well. Got a little scar under there, but not too bad. Um, but for the most part, um, 
in terms of actually being on my sled and sliding, that was the extent. I mean, you would get beat up. I mean, we were bruised from head to toe. As you learned to track, you would just ping pong off the walls until you got it. And then usually on race day, you'd take off all that extra padding. Skin to win was our motto, you know, it's down to as little as possible. And then down you go. So the, the only time I really was significantly injured was when I was not in the track. And it was actually what ended my career. Um, I was with a group of, there were probably five of us, five or six of us that had just gone down the track during the Olympic team trials um, in 2006. And um, we were waiting for the truck to take us back to the top of the track in Calgary. And unfortunately, there was a bobsled that was put into our session. Usually bobsled train, then they cleared out and then we would come in and have the track or vice versa. We tried not to be on the track at the same time because we had two different takeout points. Bobsleds stopped at a lower dock and we came on up because we didn't have brakes. It took us longer to stop. We got out at a higher point um, in the outrun and we were sitting up there waiting for the truck to take us back and a bobsled came through the finish line and failed to brake. The brakeman had apparently, I don't honestly don't really know, um, didn't, hadn't been in a bobsled before or hadn't been on that track, had, was disoriented, didn't know where he was and failed to pull the brakes. Um, we didn't know this, of course, until we looked down and saw it coming at us. And when they're traveling 55, 60, 65 miles an hour, um, it doesn't take long to cover that little distance. So we were trying to jump but we were on a platform that had, on one side had a staircase that kind of acted like a wall. So we couldn't just get out of the way. We had to kind of go forward and then get out of the way. And it hit a couple of us. Um, unfortunately, uh, it hit my sled and sent it flying up the road and um, hit my right side as I jumped. Luckily, I had just left the ground, so I didn't have anything planted firmly on the ground. So I just sort of went through the air, tumbling a bit. Unfortunately though, my teammate, Noelle Pikes Pace was on the other side and she had the staircase. She could not get out like I did. She had to take like two more steps to get off the platform. And one of her um, feet, she had it planted to jump and the front of that bobsled hit her leg and fractured both tibia and fibia um, right there. So her season um, came to an end. She had a miraculous recovery. Noelle is an amazing woman. Um, if you ever get a chance to talk with her, I highly recommend it. She's fantastic. She eventually came back. She missed those games, was not able. She tried. She was this close to, to actually qualifying for those games. Missed it, but did then come back later and ended up getting a silver medal in, in Sochi. So, She's a great, a great comeback story, but I was unfortunately, I didn't break any bones, thankfully, but was banged up significantly on the right side to the point that um, my leg and foot was so swollen, I could not get my training, my racing spikes on my shoes. Mm. So I spent like the next, that was on a Wednesday and I had to qualify for the Olympics on Saturday. 
and there was no way to ask for a waiver. I couldn't ask for an extension. There was, it was all or nothing that weekend. And it just, I could not warm up. I couldn't do much of anything. So um, my husband actually uh, was my coach during the 2002 games. He built my sled, taught me everything he knew about racing on the tracks. He raced for Canada, was a two-time world champion. And um, I spent those three days after that accident on his couch, like packed in ice, trying to get ready. And he feverishly was working on my sled, trying to put it back together and, you know, just trying to get ready, but it just, we couldn't, couldn't do it. So my career ended, but I did go to those games as a coach. Once again, an injury took me out like it did in handball, but they asked me to stay. So I went to those games in Torino in 2006 as a coach. So um, my role changed from athlete to coach like that. So, so yes, I had been hurt, but not, not, not sliding. I was curious, you had mentioned, you know, the, uh, and I'm going to share the picture that you sent to us. You had mentioned, you know, that voice in your head. And I was just curious if you were always able to, you know, follow that, that voice and, and keep that in your head. If you had had, you know, things that got in the way of that, like an injury or, or something like that. Yeah, no, um, I, I love these pictures of the top of the track. This is uh, a photo on our Olympic race day. Um, it was snowing, it was cloudy. The day before, there are similar pictures from the day before during training when it was sunny, it was really uh, cold, which is what we like. We like it when it's really bitter cold because the, the ice is really hard, really fast. Um, but the next day we were on our race day it was a, a blizzard. Um, it was snowing so hard when we woke up that morning. But um, I was blessed. My husband, uh, like I said, was my coach. And when we woke up that morning, I was like, oh my gosh, this is just not going to work. It's snowing so hard. This is going to be horrible. They're going to cancel. And he's like, nope, we are going to follow through on our plan until somebody tells us this is canceled. We are going to keep going. So we went through our routine, got to the track, uh, got ready to go. Um, that same amount of focus you see in that look right there was what we were doing for, for pre-race focus. We were, we were ready. And actually, a lot of the other countries, other nations were standing around saying this needs to be canceled. They were you know, saying this isn't going to be a fair race, blah, blah, blah. And I kept, I was having to just tune that out and Ryan my husband would come over and say just do your thing just do your thing mm -hmm. so I was warming up getting ready because uh, it did take me longer to warm up than a lot of the other I mean my teammate was like 12 years younger than me so she could warm up and be ready in no time flat and it would take me longer to get ready and so and Ryan knew that so he's like nope just stick with your your game plan so um so yeah you'd have those thoughts of doubt fear injury like I I was still dealing with that torn hamstring during the Olympic Games so I was checking in with uh, the sports med folks that were there to kind of help me get warmed up massaging that leg keeping it warm keeping it ready um, just sticking with the plan and when we got close to race time they're like we're going we're going with it we're going ahead the men raced before we did so we got to kind of watch a little bit of how they were doing and it was, you know, just like any other race day. It was like, nope, we're, we're into this. So um, I owe a lot of, of that mental prep that day to, to Ryan of just keeping us 
focused and saying, just go with the plan, go with the plan. Um, don't, don't worry about it. So yeah, those, that picture is right as you come out of the start and you're right at the beginning of curve one. And so right now in your head, you're already in curve three, four, five. Like I was already ahead there. You're just getting started. So the, the paparazzi, the, the photographers, they were all right there at that curve. And you, you come down that curve and there's these bazillions of cameras. But I was very fortunate. I was one of those people that could like totally block that stuff out. Like I would start my race and then like the world didn't exist for those 50 to 60 seconds. And then when I'd cross the finish line, it was like the world opened up again. My teammate, Tristan, was complete opposite. She would be like, hey, did you see so-and-so standing on the side of corner, corner three? No, I didn't. <laughs> so a uh, very different, you know, frame of mind for different athletes. She could look around and see people. And I just, the world, the only time the world would come in was at that track in Altenburg. At that same point where I crashed, there was a donut stand that was right next to the track come down 80 miles an hour. And I'm like, I smell donuts. I remember having that thought in my head once. And I'm like, don't ever do that again. <laughs> don't ever think about donuts ever again on the, on the track. But yeah, just a different approach to how we would, Tristan and I were complete opposites um, when it came to how we prepped and how we went through training, but both successful. It was just how she did it and how I did it. And it was, we both, it was successful for both of us. And it's, obvious from your story so far that you have a strong mental game. Uh, when did you begin developing that or did you consciously develop it or has it always been with you? You know, that's a really great question, especially now because we do a lot with performance coaching. I never had that growing up. You know, that was not part of sport back then. You know, the, the little bit about, you know, thinking positively and, you know, uh, the, you know, imagine yourself, making this goal and you know that sort of stuff but really that senior year at Marshall even like I was not aware that I was getting that close to that record that year that I was leading that's how I liked it I didn't like to know that stuff all I wanted to do was do my job enjoy playing and if other things happened we won or you made a an all-star team or whatever that was totally icing on the cake my life has always been just find those things that you love to do, go out and do them as hard as you can, um, put as much effort into it as you can, and, and just um, whatever comes along, comes along. You know, if you win that medal, great. If you don't, again, then when you look back on it, you can be like, okay, it just wasn't meant to be because I did everything possible to get to that point. So mentally, that was the attitude all the time. But actually having skills like visualizations, so having names for them, visualization, self-talk, um, that sort of thing really didn't come in until, until later. Um, and I didn't really have anyone, we, because skeleton was sort of the side sport to the other sports on the roster, um, we didn't have, we had nutrition services, of course, when we were at the training center and things like that, but it really wasn't until that year going into the games that we were an Olympic sport at that point that they say, oh, well, we better get these guys, um, somebody from sports psychology department and, and help them. So it was late in the game when that came in. And I think back to thinking, you know, wow, what we could have you know, done. And I'm sure the athletes now all have those services 
um, but we did not because at that time we were not an Olympic sport, so we didn't have that unless you went out and searched for it on your own. And I just didn't know enough about it to do that. So, um, yeah, it was it was late in the game before that happened. It was just the personality thing, I think, for me was. Um, and I think Lauren and I have talked about it before. Um, a lot of that goes back to a faith that I have. Um, I'm uh, a Christian, and I believe that that's my life, um, is that I've been given certain skills and abilities, and my job is to figure out how to use those the best of my ability, um, not only to, um, to serve myself, but to serve others. And that's what's been the real joy of working for a company like Valor, where all those lessons that I have learned in sport, um, I'm having the opportunity now to give that back and show people how they can use that, whether it's emergency services, it's healthcare, um, it's in the corporate world, uh, being able to work with my students now, uh, my high school kids that are you know, just starting out in, in their careers and um, so having the ability to give that back has been, has been a real joy. Sure. Um, and if you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about what it was like um, when, once you won the medal? Yes. Like I said, standing on a podium, thinking of a lot of people. Um, but certainly um, my family was, was all there and um, that, that feeling of, looking up at that time, that score clock, and seeing the number one by my name meant I had a medal of some sort. I had no idea. Tristan hadn't come down the track yet. So it didn't really matter at that point. I was like, this is, you know, I had to keep things in perspective. Three years prior, I'd never even heard of the sport. You know, so people are like, were you disappointed you didn't win a gold? I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> I had just found out about this sport, you know, three or four years ago. Um, it was actually earlier than that, but still it was like, keep it in perspective. I'm not one of those Olympic athletes that has a story like the gymnasts and the figure skaters who were in their sport when they were three years old and their whole life has been this goal. My life has been filled with all kinds of wonderful things, great experiences and stuff. So this was just keep things in perspective. So I was truly able to feel the joy of that moment in the experience, even though I missed out by whatever it was, 10th of a second or something, you know, on the goal, it didn't matter. I mean, it really, really didn't. Um, our sport had, this was a reintroduction. We had successfully as a program shown that this sport could be back in the Olympics. That was a huge part for, for, the, for the skeleton community internationally let's have a really good show. Let's have a really good show overall, men's and women's races, and show that we deserve to be back in the sport. And so when we crossed the finish line and our race was done, there was a much bigger victory. We were like, we know we're gonna be in these next Olympic games for a while to come because we just showed that this, this sport can do it and that there's a lot of good people here working hard. And so when I was interviewed afterwards, they're like, how does it feel? I'm like, it's an awesome day, not just for me, but for our program, for the international sliding community, because we just, we did what we had to do and we're in, you know? So there were a lot of victories that day that felt really good. And um, so later that evening, that was one of those Olympic games where the, the, the medal ceremony was actually um, later in the, like you didn't get your medal right there, which was kind of a bummer. 
Um, but we went back down into Salt Lake and, and got it later. And so my husband was, was with me and, and we got to, to go through that together. And so that was a lot of fun because I would never have, have done it without him. He, he was, um, he's meticulous with his track notes and everything else. And he just um, was a phenomenal technician coach, um, very, very binary where I'm very emotional. And so between the two of us, we made a great team and um, it, it, it worked out in the end. So, yeah. Did you know at that point that you wanted to continue and, and try for the next Olympics? I actually did not. I was just sort of letting things flow. And I had been working on my PhD. I had all of my coursework done, but the dissertation was not written or defended. And so when I got back uh, from those games, I was blessed to have a great uh, advisor, academic advisor, who was on the phone. It's like, oh, that was so awesome. We loved watching you do that. That was really great. Uh, now you need to get back here and get this finished. And so it was great to have her support. Um, Barb Kalika, just like on the phone and let's get this done. And so she was really encouraging. So I took that next year off. My husband and I traveled to the world championships in Japan that year just as tourists. It was awesome. We, didn't, we weren't carrying a bunch of stuff. We just got to watch and enjoy the athletes. And I was able to get my, my dissertation done and, and earned my doctoral degree. Um, and it wasn't after that that I was like, okay, I'm not sure I'm done. So I know I'm now I'm definitely way older than everybody else, but I don't know, unless somebody beats me, why not keep trying, you know? So I hadn't had no idea it was going to end with the, the accident, but, um, but yeah, it was the Salt Lake experience was, was great. Um, had the opportunity to walk into opening ceremonies with the World Trade Center flag on behalf of firefighters and, um, and the sliding sports. And so from the moment opening ceremonies to the, the closing, it was just, it was fabulous. It was really great. And what would you view as the keys to your success in um, all of this? That's a good question. I was going to say, which part of her I know. that she's done? <laughs> um, you know, I think, I guess I would have to say that um, a big part of it is surrounding yourself with the right people. Um, people that can fill in the gaps where you have some weaknesses. Like with my husband and I, we're, we're opposites in a lot of ways. But whether it was during our sport or our marriage, it's... Um, you know, he, he's the, the very analytical person, um, really studies a problem, technical aspects of things. And I'm just the emotional mess, hot mess, you know, so between the two of us, um, uh, we, we work things out really well. And um, Ryan is a drag racer by trade. He can make anything with a CNC machine. I mean, you, you, he made our sleds. A lot of the athletes uh, were on his sleds, have won a lot of Olympic medals, World Cup medals on his equipment. Um, he's uh, always been well respected by athletes. He was the athlete rep for the sport when he was competing because he was um, considered a, a very fair, um, his, his honesty and integrity. He wasn't just all about Canada or himself. It was about the sport in general. And um, so when you surround yourself with people like that, um, whether my high school team where I was surrounded by athletes who, who had the same kind of work ethic and 
wanted to have you know those same kind of goals were willing to put in the hard work when you keep continually surround yourself with people like that academic advisors who are pushing you and coaching you and mentoring you um, parents family my parents and my family have been in my uh, my corner since day one and like we were saying at the very beginning this is home base I could go out in the world and try things and fail and not worry because when I came home I knew that they loved me just the same. So you have that confidence of going out into the world and trying stuff. And when the world slaps you around and you fail or you do whatever, it's okay because you have this team behind you that's like, that's all right, try something else, do something different. Um, or let's try it differently and keep going in this route. So um, there was just that always that sense of, of having it. And so I think keeping it in perspective because my faith said, you are not just an athlete you are not just an olympian you're a child of god and you are a daughter and a wife and a friend and whatever those are the identities that i fall back on that allow me to be you know as Brene brown would say you know to be vulnerable to go out and and do those things because i have that identity in, in christ and i don't have to worry about what the rest of it is i can go out and try stuff and if it works great if it doesn't that's okay I can learn from it and try other things. Well, you certainly have tried a lot of things. So what have you <laughs> learned about yourself through your journey? Um, that I need all those people, <laughs> that it's not, life is not a solo event. Um, even though my sport was, you know, just me on the sled, um, I was still part of a team and um, I do, I can do well in an individual sport. I did javelin and high jump in college. Those were individual sports, but I needed those teammates and those coaches. So I think knowing, um, I think learning that it, it isn't solo, that we're, we are, I think we've been created to be in relationship. And so whether that's a, um, you know, my, my church relationship with my community there, my work relationship with my coworkers, who I absolutely love at school, community with my kids at school, my family. Um, I just feel like that's how we're designed. And for me, that's totally written in scripture, love thy neighbor as thyself. So there is a piece that is self. You know, we, we talk about um, the selfish gene and, and how, you know, people are all caught up in the selfies and and this is the, the self-centered generation. But I think we have to be realistic about that. There is a part at which we have to be healthy about ourselves. We have to love ourselves. We have to be taking care of ourselves in order to take care and love other people. And that's clearly written for me anyway. It's clearly written in scripture. And so having that ability to say that about myself, take care of myself, love myself, whether I fail or succeed, keeping that in perspective so that I can then love others helps me with that, keeping that sense of relationship. So I think the big part has been keeping things in perspective. Um, I don't feel like, you know, I, I feel for these athletes who have been in their sport since they were three and they get to the games or they fail to make the Olympic team or they get to the Olympics and they fail in a big way. And it's like their life, they feel like their life has been a waste. I'm like, what? No, no, your life is absolutely valuable. Look at all the things you've learned and the experiences you've had to that point. That is not just who you are. You're more than that. So hoping and helping people understand that let's keep this in perspective um, is a big part, I think, of sport. And I think that helps them with that fear 
when you get up to something that's fearful, um, trying something new, you can be like, okay, perspective, perspective, talk yourself through this, keep it in perspective. Um, so I think that's been a, a big part of it is just lying back on that faith. This might sound like an odd question, but based on what you just mentioned, did, have you ever felt guilt uh, because you were kind of such a short time in the sport and won a silver and then there are others who did spend their life? Did you feel guilty at that at any point? It's not that I felt guilty, but it certainly was on my mind, which is why I love opportunities like this to talk about the whole story because I think there are lots of different ways that you can get to where you're going. Um, and for me, the path was not the traditional path, but I've been an athlete just like they have since they were three. You know, um, early on, I was in competitive sport. Was I in that sport? No, but I put the same hours and time into basketball, into handball, into track and field. I mean, it's just that it was in all these different things. So my, my work ethic, the hours and stuff that I put in were the same. It was just in a very different way. So when those feelings would come up, I would, you know, yeah, there was a little twinge of feeling like, oh, you know, this, how do I explain this? Um, but then I thought, no, this is, everybody's story is different. And um, there are just some of those sports out there that aren't things that you can get into. You can't, uh, get into this sport when you're three or four, you know, this is something that, you know, luge, they start taking kids pretty early. You can be, um, you know, right into your probably 10, 11, 12, 13, they start looking at kids, but some of these sports just, you need time. You can't just throw a kid down a track at 80 miles an hour, you know, so there's, there's gotta be, um, something to it. So this sport just happens to be one that you come at from a different approach. So, um, yeah. I've been a lifelong athlete. I haven't been a lifelong slider. So. And then you've been a, a lifelong performer. So what advice yeah. would you give uh, an aspiring performer in, in general and in any of the domains that you've found yourself? Yeah. Um, I just think back to some of the stuff I tell our kids at school, try all kinds of things. Um, I think that's the greatest gift that we can give kids is the freedom to go try things and fail and find that that's not something they want to do. Okay, so you tried the trumpet, you tried piano, it wasn't what you wanted, so go try something else. Try art, try learning a different language, try your hand at computer skills, photography, cooking, you know, let them try all kinds of things. And eventually, the more they try things, the more they'll start to see, oh, okay, actually, I am pretty good at that. And I, I really, really like doing that. I like doing it by myself or I like doing it with other people. And when they find those God-given abilities and talents and they start to put that together, then my encouragement is then just take it as far as it'll go. Just push yourself as far as you can. Um, for our kids, luckily the school I work at is a, a Christian affiliated school. I can tell them like your job is to just give it all back give it back to God. And you do that by um, being a good teammate, being a good classmate, um, being encouraging to others, um, being that person on the team that works the hardest, sets that standard, but yet is not worried about failing, will try things and not, not be embarrassed about failing. 
um, really being encouraging to other people and and you'll find your niche you'll find it and you might not have just one there might be that weird thread that when you look back on it like I do that there were connections in all those things I was a good skeleton slider because of things that I had in my firefighting and nursing career I'm a good nurse because of things that I learned in skeleton and firefighting and they just sort of fed off of each other. So sometimes you're really blessed and it's one thing and you're just like the, the greatest violin player ever. But for some people it's multiple things. So don't be afraid to try, don't be afraid to fail. Surround your people, surround yourself with people who will support you, can, can educate you and um, go live life to the fullest, push it as far as you can. Had the G-Force pushed, pushed your chin to the ice on your first run, do you think you would have continued or if you had a similar situation as the one that turned out that way? Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I've never been asked that question before. Um, I don't know because I think Ryan would have been right there and said, that's just part of the game. That's just part of it. So let's start. If you feel like you need to back off a little bit, start a little slower, then let's do that and then work your way back up into it. Um, he's always, always had an answer when I needed it. And I think he would have, have had it there too, if that had, had happened at the beginning. Um, I actually had never seen the sport done live before I got on. A lot of people have asked me that, like, if you had actually seen a sled come down the track going that fast, <laughs> would you have done it? And I, and I thought, well, that's a good question too, because I don't know. I think I would have, but, um, I, I think I, I think I still would have, would have tried. I ask in part because if I had a speed bump in the parking lot too fast, it kind of rattles me for a long time. So. <laughs> well, you know, and that's, that's true. I, and I think those are little, that's our brain telling us, be careful. You know, I remember at a very young age at 16, being on the fire department at the age of 16, I had just gotten my driver's license. And within just a couple of months went on my first, auto accident where we lost somebody. It was a fatal accident. I will never, as long as I live, forget when I got behind the wheel that next time. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't ever want to drive a car again. I don't, I don't want to do this. But you have to just stop and really talk yourself through and be like, you can't live your life like that. You have to, you know, be smart. Take those those little warnings are there for a reason. It's trying to protect you, but keep it in perspective. And um, yeah, you, you, there are those little moments where those are good little checks. You're, that's that recognizing that fear is there for a reason and it's okay to be a little afraid, but um, there are reasons that you work around that and work through it. So, and I think Ryan would have been right there to help me work through that. Sure. Lauren, do you wanna pose the famous question yeah so you've alluded to it already you know uh, uh, at various points uh, throughout our conversation so far but um as you know I, I mentioned to you kevin and i met in grad school studying expert performance and one of the things we want to hear from everybody is what their thoughts are on this whole nature nurture debate um and uh we're asking everybody to to talk us through their perspective on that a little bit and start by telling us what percentage you would give to each? Are you on the one end of the continuum that's like, yep, it's all nature, it's what you're, you're born with, as you mentioned, kind of you know, God-given talents or, or 
the place that God has put you in, um, or I'm going to guess and say that you're not on the other end of the, the continuum <laughs> of just, nope, none of that stuff matters. It's all what you do. So what are your thoughts on that? Ooh, good question. Yeah, I would probably lean a little more towards, towards nature, but you know, I've also in my time, I've seen a lot of very talented people who have not succeeded because they haven't either had the desire to, to push through and push themselves to those next levels. Um, what, that's one of the most frustrating things as a coach. You know, I, I help coach little sports teams and you see these kids that have talent, but they just have absolutely no desire to do anything with it. Um, that is so discouraging. So I, I, I truly think it is a mix. Um, I think that they're, depending on what the activity is, <clears throat> there has to be a little bit <laughs> of genetic material there to work with. Um, you know, you can want to be the best post player in the NBA, but if you're born at five foot two, good luck, you know. So there has to be some, some talent and ability there. But I think that that's your starting point. And, and that's, the, that's the treasure hunt that I tell our kids at school. The treasure hunt is figure out what you've been given. Um, and then your job then is to take that treasure, that, that ability and that talent, and then just run with it as much as you can. So that then takes in the effort and the nurturing, the having coaches and, and family and friends that support you and um, resources, whether it's money or, you know, facilities that you need. Um, years and years and years ago, like right after the 2002 games, there was a study that was done that asked Olympic athletes up until that point, like what were the factors that most played into what you think, you know, was, um, was your success. And the top three answers were um, commitment. You, you have to have commitment. That was number one. Number two was support of family and friends. And number three was um, coaching, you know, having proper mentorship, uh, coaching skills, whether it was mental, whether it was the physical skills of your, your sport. So um, that's a lot of, one is one that you can control and the other ones, the other two are two, you know, picking the people, as we said, around you, around you, that, that's a lot of nurture, but there's gotta be some material there to work with. You can't bake the cake unless you've got the, the stuff, you know, so um, I think it's a, a good mix. I'd say 50, 50, 60, 40 in favor of nature. I think you got to have something. Um, and the fun part is figuring out what that is. What, what ingredients do you have and what can you make with it? So what did you get from the store um, to start with? And then what can you do? Like those chef shows where they like put the food on the counter and like, okay, now you got to make something out of that. That's how I feel like life is. Here's what you got. Go make something with it. So whip up something, something fun. I've given up on my Brad Pitt uh, look-alike career because of that. So. <laughs> the listeners but see, that's why you make a good radio voice. Is that what I always say? <laughs> like, that's how I always feel. I'm like, I was a good, good radio voice. I did get yeah. to do that in 2010. The Vancouver Games, I did TV uh, broadcasting with NBC, which was so nerve-wracking. That was way more nerve-wracking than going down the hill myself, but so fun. Um, so yeah, you guys are into the, the good stuff. It's really fun to get a talk with people and interview. Those are good skills. See, interviewing skills are, are one of those things. 
uh, anything that we haven't talked about that you want the listeners to know about? Oh gosh, we ran through, I think everything, didn't we? Um, yeah, I just, um, you know, we're in some tough times right now and it's going to be really easy to, to get discouraged and to feel afraid, to feel that fear. Um, I know, you know, our kids will, I hope be coming back to school in the fall, but it's going to look different and that's okay. We're just going to work with it, with what we're given. And, um, I think, uh, sticking with each other, supporting each other, trying to put aside the differences and how we're, because everybody's looking at it differently. I'm a healthcare provider, so I'm naturally going to look at it from different than somebody who's a mom, single mom, trying to work, um, you know, uh, stocking shelves, needs that job, needs to be at work. We're all going to be looking at this whole situation from different perspectives, and we need to respect that, try to put ourselves in other people's shoes and realize that we're all coming at this from different angles, but at the same time, as they say, we're all in the same storm. We're not all in the same boat. So put yourself in that other person's boat for a moment and think about how they're having to deal with it. And then I think we'll be able to weather this a little bit better if we do that. So, um, and I think that's a lot of lessons from sport that have all kind of come into that perspective. So I would say everybody just hang in there, Keep finding the positive things that you can make out of it, and um, and we'll get through it. But be kind, be kind to each other, and um, enjoy life along the way. And what would you say is the biggest takeaway from your story? Um, oh, biggest takeaway. Mm. Gosh, all that stuff. You know, um, it's okay to fail. It's okay to try lots of different things. Um, we've all been given something. Find what that something is and use it to the best of your ability to bring yourself joy, um, to bring yourself good health, mentally, physically, spiritually, but then figure out a way how to use all that to serve other people because that's when the joy multiplies. It's one thing to enjoy it by yourself, but when you learn how you can share it with other people, then you get to share in their joy and their excitement and it multiplies itself. So um, finding those ways to do that, um, I think is, is the fun part of life and then enjoying it when you get to help other people. Well, thank you so much, Leanne. It's been amazing having you uh, share your story and, and hearing even more about it than I already knew. So thanks so much. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This has been great. The Path Distilled is hosted by Kevin Harris and Lauren Tashman, created and produced by Kevin Harris. The content is copyrighted by The Path Distilled, all rights reserved.